I'm a tinkerer, you know, I like to make things. It's no mystery, static is basically the future. The static site isn't good for everything, right? There are use cases that, sadly, we can't quite satisfy, but there are lots of places where it is bang on. Now, it turns out there's quite a lot more that you could do than you might initially think. It's a known entity on the server, but it's the Wild West when you get into the client side. Building things that can work everywhere when it comes to client side rendering is tough. Hey, this is Brian, and you're listening to Jamstack Radio, a bi weekly series where we discuss the Jamstack, a new way of building websites and apps that are fast, secure, and simple to work with. Jamstack Radio is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. So, welcome to another installment of Jamstack Radio. Here we've got Eli. Hey, hey, how's hey. it going, guys? And then we've got also as our guest today, we have Phil Hawksworth. Hello. Nice pronunciation. Pretty yeah. Good. Yeah, pretty good. Well, you know, yeah. the English pronunciation I'm pretty good with. <laughs> other other cultures, uh, last names are kind of hard. Yeah. So, Phil, we had you on, or actually, I have you on the podcast because you have a very interesting talk that's out there, but also blog posts about isomorphic rendering. On the jam. So before we get into that, <laughs> yeah. can we can you just tell the listeners who you are? Who's Phil? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'm Phil. Sounds like I'm at an AA meeting as I say that. But uh, <laughs> uh, so I work as a technology director at an agency based in London called RGA. RGA. We're actually from New York. That's where our head office is. But I'm in the I'm in the London office. So there's like 300 or so of us there. And I'm a tech director. So it, I'm my background is in web development. You know, I'm a front end developer by trade. But it's been a while. I'll be honest. Since I've been allowed to release code out into the wild. So now I tend to work with the development team um, okay. who build things. But I do lots of kind of technical architectures and kind of working with clients to figure out what we should build and how, answering briefs, that kind of thing. But I'm a tinkerer, you know, I like I like to make things. So and that's the only way really I can find to to stay relevant and keep yeah. you know, keep my keep my finger a tiny bit on the pulse, even though I'm not building things for for real. I build things for myself and I build things so that I can I can understand, you know, how we should be trying to make things in the future. Cool. And then so RJA agency you guys build websites for other people? We do, yeah. So, in fact, I think I'll probably be in trouble from our kind of marketing folk for saying we're an agency. We've we've stopped calling ourselves an agency now. We're now calling ourselves a company, which could mean it could mean anything, couldn't it? It couldn't mean yeah. absolutely anything. But <laughs> but our kind of line is that we we build products, services, platforms, and communications for clients to grow their business. But really, it's a mal- <laughs> so you can see why I say we're yeah. an agency. I was going to uh, say McDonald's is a company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there are lots of companies out there. But uh, yeah, so we tend to work with big global clients. So we work for, Nike is the, one of our kind of longest running okay. clients. So we do a lot of global work for Nike. Um, uh, Google, Beats by Dre, we did a lot for Beats by Dre. And you know that, that kind of company, Unilever is another one I work on quite a lot. So it's, it's really broad. It's all kinds of uh, different types of engagement. But yeah, we'll do things from building their communications to actually building a, the product itself. So Nike ID is the kind of canonical example we talk about because that's something where we came up with some of the concepts and then we helped the actual you know industrial design and then also through to the building out the platform and then communicating it. So it's you know soup to nuts, as I gather you say over here. Yeah, <laughs> soup to nuts. <laughs> yeah, keep on with the uh, the English accent I'm, that you're I'm working doing on. My, yeah, this is this is real though, by the way. This is uh, yeah. this isn't something I've affected. For uh, <laughs> for the podcast, yeah. If you didn't mention London, I'd say people. Uh, the, Phil's actually from Minnesota. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know if my accent might slip at some point. I might revert. Yeah. 
You don't say. <laughs> cool. So then, with your tinkering, and then also with your work from RGA and like architectures, mm-hmm. isomorphic rendering, like that's a it's a mouthful. What's... Yeah, and and bravo for saying it with a straight face. By the way, I felt <laughs> I felt like a a bit of a clown when I uh, I used that expression on my blog post about it. But you know, I've I've heard the term isomorphic JavaScript quite a lot, and yeah. people are talking about that a lot. The thing that I've been making as a as a bit of a proof of concept has come about because you know I've been a bit frustrated with some of some sites that I've seen that I felt have been a bit over engineered, but doing something that I think is very sensible, you know, being able to progressively enhance a, a website or a web page which is already a viable landing point, you know, that's been quote unquote rendered on the server, which for for my money just means the server output HTML, you know, yeah. which you know that's what that's that's what that means. But then also adding client side rendering on top of that. So you often see one or the other. You know, you often see empty body tags being you know pushed down the wire, and then everything being rendered in JavaScript on the front end. And I don't really care for that. I think there are plenty of places where that's absolutely the right thing to do. But for a website, which is about communicating content, I'm very keen for the content to get down the wire and into the eyeballs as fast as possible. So, so this kind of thing that I've been talking about a little bit and, and blogged about really was an attempt at what I felt was a very simple way of using the same kind of templating on the server, but then also pumping those templates down the wire as JavaScript so that you could then you know, enhance the page with client-side rendering on top of what was already a viable page in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, and what's beautiful about this, and Eli, I brought you on because you have not only do you have agency experience, but you're actually a designer who also knows how to code. Yeah. Um, so you can manipulate the page at a very high level and get like really awesome stuff working on there, but you don't have to touch the server. And I think it's what what Phil was talking yeah. about. Like you can get a lot of work done on the front side. So. Could you tell us a little bit more about uh, the differences between server side and client side? In, in terms of the considerations that there are? Or yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, absolutely. I mean, first things first, you know, when you're in the server side environment, you're in a contained, known environment, right? You've got, you've got complete control over that, typically. Yeah. And so things can happen in a much more predictable way. You know, you don't have to, you know, cater for quite so many edge cases because you're working in a contained, known environment. Was it Douglas Crockford that talked about the the web being the most hostile software engineering environment in the world? And a lot of that, I think, is down to the fact that we don't know where our code is going to run when we're talking about the client side. You know, yeah. You know, and it's not just how the design works, but how you know if we're starting to add behaviors in the into the client, those can be interpreted different ways by different JavaScript engines. You know, rendering engine, engines are different. And we don't know what the devices are that we're going to be serving this to. You know, we've got a pretty good idea, but we don't know what devices are under the Christmas tree, is the expression I've heard a few times. <laughs> you know, we don't know what's coming at the end of the year. So building things that can work everywhere when it comes to client-side rendering is is tough, which is why I'm very keen for that to be treated as a progressive enhancement rather than, you know, it's all or nothing. You know, either this massive blob of JavaScript will execute and work and you'll get what you want. Or it'll break because you know it's JavaScript isn't quite as fault tolerant as mm-hmm. HTML. You know, browsers are great at rendering HTML, and if they don't understand something, they skip over it, and you know things can things can continue to work. So that's why I'm very keen on building something that is delivered as HTML, which is viable. So it's it's rendered in a in a known contained environment on the server side, and then that's a viable deployable thing, and then you can enhance it with JavaScript if the su- devices support it. Um, and that was another kind of principle that I was keen to explore with this little um, experiment. You know, 
building something that even if the JavaScript failed was still completely viable. So you know all of the internal links would still work because it's just it's just the web. You know it's just it, they're just links. But then every internal link once JavaScript is there is hijacked, so it just pulls the bit of data that it needs and then uses the same templates that, that you've used in the in the server to to render that. So yeah, the the big distinction is a long rambling answer to a short <laughs> qu uh, question is you know that it's. It's a known entity on the server, but uh, it's the wild west when you get into the into the client side. Yeah, and client side is kind of another way of saying browser to a lot right. of yeah, absolutely. And and I guess uh, and browsers can be you know come in all shapes and sizes, yeah. right? I mean, it might be a watch, it might be uh, on the dashboard of your car, you know, it could be in all <laughs> kinds of places. Yeah, it might but, be a listening device on your kitchen counter called yep. Alexa. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sorry for all the listeners listening on your speaker, but <laughs> Alexa, turn off. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they they don't have a, an actual browser on on the Echo as of yet, but I could see that like progressing into something and going to again like it's all things on every single device. So you have to account for so many different use cases. Like we just for the Netlify site, we actually just looked at our records to see how much mobile use we have to see whether or not it's something that we actually care about mm. um, at this point in our our life as a startup. And we found that our mobile numbers for Netlify are actually very low. Right, which is the lowest I've ever seen for any company I worked for, because most people not going into blog, but going to actually app.netlify.com and maintaining mm -hmm. your actual site in our dashboard. Mm -hmm. uh, most people will view it in the dashboard, and that's basically the way we presented it to them. So yeah. I think that's mainly the reason why most people do that. Yeah. But then we have we still are stuck with like whether or not certain things we're doing work in Safari as opposed to mm -hmm. work in Edge mm -hmm. as opposed to work in IE seven. Yeah. And then if it's IE seven, we say sorry, out of luck. But right. we'll just move on. But you still have to. Even Safari is like way different from Chrome. Yeah. And it, it's painful at sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uses like an admin tool, you know, the kind of thing you're talking about on Netlify, where there's a fairly contained audience for that, right? There's people who are maintaining a site. They're your customers, your consumers, and they've gone there to to perform an activity. That's a slightly narrower audience than you know the yeah. consumers of the output, right? Yep. So you you can be you can set some constraints there and say, well, you know, this is a reasonable browser matrix for that. But I have to say, I mean, I've I've been in and used it on a mobile device just to prove that I could as yeah. well, and just to say, well, you know what, I can deploy my site now just just from my phone when I'm on the train, yeah, because um, that's a, you know, it makes me feel smug about you know how how powerful that is and how uh, how flexible it can be. So um, you know, so thanks for making it work there. Yeah. So going back to the this buzzword term, the mouse soup that is isomorphic rendering. Yes, is this more the separation between? We talked about the client side and the server side, mm -hmm. but what is isomorphic about the handshake between the API and the front end? Yeah, so I don't think really this is a very new idea. It's not a very new concept. Um, yeah, you know this idea of the same templating being done on the server and on the client. You know that there've been people talking about doing that for a while, but the the thing that I've been experimenting here with is driving this from a static site generator and then making sure that I present the data that was used server side as a as an API that the client could consume and that's just been done as a bunch of static assets as well right so okay. um, so the path for any one of my URLs in the client has a corresponding API path which is just a JSON file so there's there's no querying that's done because all of those things are static views if you like but I quite like the fact that you can take you know a a, a blob of data that was used server side and then Carve that up into a bunch of JSON files, and then present that as you know a static assets that can then be queried. So I tried to kind of normalize the API in that way, so that okay. you can use it 
from anywhere. So uh, it's just it's just building on that static model. Cool. And so, then, but that, I don't think I answered your question or even came close to it, did well, I? Well, <laughs> you, you sort of answered it when you, you mentioned JSON. Okay. Um, so you, you have your data presented as JSON to be able to talk to your front end. Yes. Um, and there's no need to actually be running a, am I correct, uh, running a server for your JSON? No, absolutely. It's just a, just a bunch of files. You know? okay. um, and in this particular example, I'm actually I'm using a, another third party for the content management of this. So I'm using Contentful, which I know has come up on, you know, in these discussions yeah. uh, many times. I'm, I'm a big fan of Contentful. And so behind the scenes, you know, my, my build mechanics, those are making a query to Contentful and they're getting back a, you know, a JSON response. And then I'm massaging that into the shape that I want and stashing that locally as a bunch of files, which is really nice because it means that you know you can have a local build that actually doesn't depend on Contentful at all. Yeah. You know, because once it's stashed them, it just it just holds them there. I actually even commit them to the repo. So I've got I've I've got those bits of content versioned as well. Oh. So if if Contentful did go away, yeah. I, you know, I still have a, a viable build that works. But it also means then that I've got the data in exactly the shape that I want, and then I can, you know, I can update that and what have you, but I can present that as a bunch of files. I found with dynamic content like that, it, it can be kind of hard to, to manage. Do you have a certain workflow that works really well for you? Yeah, so I, I guess the key word there is is dynamic and what you mean by dynamic, because um, you know, before I kind of put this example together, I'd been trotting out a talk that I'd done quite a few times about static site. Structures and saying, well, you know, this can be much more dynamic than you think. And so I had this real mouth, you thought isomorphic rendering was a mouthful, dynamic static site strategies. Pretty hard. Um, so I had <laughs> tongue twister. I had, yeah, I <laughs> you was, really are a director. Oh, it was it was <laughs> idiotic uh, to name a talk that. So you had to introduce it in front of hundreds of people, and always sounds stupid. But uh, and also it doesn't really mean very much. But yeah, the point of that was that um, static sites could feel much more dynamic than maybe people think by having a very low friction content management workflow. And so when you're talking about dynamic content, really for me it becomes dynamic when it becomes easy to manage and update. When you kind of drop the friction level for building out the site and updating the content, then it can feel very very dynamic and very kind of responsive. And so that's why I particularly like this model where all of the content authoring administration, all that UI, that's managed by Contentful, who would do a really nice job of creating a, a usable admin interface for that, that real people, not, not developers like us, but you know, genuine people who are just going to manage content, you know, they, they could do that in a way that makes sense. And then whenever they save that content, you know, that fires a webhook that triggers a build and it pulls in the content and off you go. So in that way, the content can feel very dynamic because it's very fresh and it's updating all the time. And I've actually found that that has made this model actually produce sites that feel way fresher and way more dynamic than, frankly, much bigger, more expensive, more complicated CMSs have provided in my experience. You know, I'm in danger of taking the lid off another thing that I've ranted and about and been damaged by in the past, but I think anyone who's done a lot of work on large enterprise-level CMSs has probably kind of had some sleepless nights and has some stories to tell because they often are so complex because they can do everything for everybody that it's impossible for anyone to do anything with them because you know it's it's just a lot to learn and they're very complex. And so I've seen the dynamism of the content generated by some of these platforms actually be way lower than, you know, this little simple architecture I put together that actually is pretty resilient and, you know, on first first glance might feel, okay, well, it's just a static site, but actually it feels much more dynamic. So the stitching together of a few good tools that are very good at a, a specific thing, I think ends up producing a site that can feel really dynamic. Cool. 
So I, I get this on Twitter uh, mm-hmm. a couple times, but I'm going to shout out to Get Set Bro on Twitter. Uh, just give him a shout out because he had a couple questions that I actually answered last night. And he wants to hear more implementation details on pe- how people are using Jamstack. And I think you're a good use case because you're, you're not only talking about it, but could you talk more about your site and how you have your setup with this, uh, this workflow in the Jamstack? Sure. Uh, you mentioned Contentful already. So can you explain a little more how that setup is working? For yeah, you? absolutely. So, I mean, I've actually. Since playing with this, I've started to build out a few more sites this way. You know, I mean, I, my blog site moved over from you know a GitHub Pages Jekyll build onto Netlify a little while ago, but ultimately it's still exactly the same shape. But this kind of example site that's the subject of the the blog post I've written is probably the one that feels the most dynamic and is the has the workflow that I think is the most interesting. But yeah, the uh, is a very very simple set of templating and gulp tasks to automate a build. Um, I use Nunjux as the the templating language, just purely because I like the syntax and I really like the fact that it has template inheritance and helpers and a few bits and pieces like that. It has a client, a JavaScript client. Yeah. But you know, lots of others could be used in the same way. And um, Jade is one that I'm starting to come around to. Uh, I don't know how, I think... I don't know. Jade, mentioning Jade, maybe there's going to be a few holy wars that that unleashes. I don't know, <laughs> well, but yeah. uh, I'd be on your side. Also. Okay, well, I know Eli's a fan. Yeah. I, I do oh, like Jade. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah. I was I was dead against it for a long time because I was always like, well, I don't know about adding another level of pre-processing in front of, of, of this stuff. I've actually really come around to it because of how well structured it is, how clean the syntax is, and um, yeah, I, I think it gives some lovely utilities. So anyway, that's by the by. It, it could certainly be a I've built other sites that have used that as well. The architecture that I've got and the approach that I've got really is, you know, just a bunch of NPM modules and some gulp. And so it just means that it's very, very easy for me to stand the development environment up. You know, I clone my repo, I run NPM install, and, you know, I have everything I need at that point. Then I have a task that gets the content and stashes it locally. I have another one that... So getting the content from Contentful at this point? Exactly. Um, And so that's kind of my production build, if you like. Uh, But I also have a local build task, which does pretty much everything else, but just doesn't bother to go off to the third party to get the content. And so whenever I'm developing, I'm just using that. You know, I'm developing against cached content, the build is super quick, and it means that I can, you know, I can test everything locally and stage it all but then when I'm ready to deploy it then you know now that I'm on Netlify then you know I just push it to git and then that triggers the build on Netlify and the build on Netlify is just the other command it's the it's the production build so it does everything that my local build does but before it does that it goes to get the the content from Netlify so it just does that that API request in conversation it, it really sounds like a holy grail of sorts for for building a lot of these things can you tell us a little bit about some use cases where you've used it in the wild on some of these big brands like Nike or, or Unilever or any of those guys? So as it happens, that's next for me, right? Um, so there, I've done lots of places where we've used this model for prototypes and, and proof of concepts. The next challenge really is convincing large companies that this is a model that can work. Google do... Um, serve a lot of sites statically, but they have their own workflow and infrastructure and static site generators that they use. But they've already bought into the fact that a static site is ample for for plenty of use cases. But for some of the other brands that you mentioned, I've yet to get this architecture out into the wild for anything you know into production. If I'm completely honest, that said, one of the, I can't mention the name of the client that I've been working on recently, but um, I've been doing a bit of a side by side comparison of. 
something that they built, which is sitting on top of the CMS that has you know some performance issues, frankly, because it comes along with a lot of kind yep. of enterprise workflows and architectures versus the same exact functionality, content, behavior, and everything of a site that's been built with this model. And the performance of one versus the other is pretty dramatic when you yeah. compare the two. And so that's been used as a, a way to actually say, okay, well, this is the kind of infrastructure we need in the enterprise, but it's a big organization to try and shift the mindset off, and they've invested a lot in a particular workflow. So I'm not sure where that's going to go at the moment, but uh, I wish I had more examples where I could say, yeah, well, I've proved out this concept and everyone's ready to go, but um, yeah. that's what I'm trying to do at the moment, actually, is trying to convince people that it's really viable to give them what they need. And that's kind of one of the purposes of why I'm shopping this this talk around right now. Yeah, it would be interesting to see that comparison once you get out of embargo stages. Yeah. Uh, but it would be very interesting to see that blog yeah, post. I'd, uh, I'd love to be able to, because um, the, the other thing that was really eye-opening in doing this little proof of concept is that one of them took many, many months to work on and the other one took two weeks. And granted, we have the benefit of you know having a very, you know, one site became the design reference for the other and we yeah. knew what the behaviors were. So it's not a like-for-like -like comparison, but, you know, building out a site in a couple of weeks to a level that you'd be happy to say, well, this outperforms what we built before is pretty staggering, really. Yeah. But that's, that, I think, is one of the powers of static sites and having complete control over the front-end code in the hands of the front-end developers whose craft is making things go fast and tuning it and working on performance and all of those kind of things. So, so yeah, it's, it's been a very interesting tool for making a point, and I'm really desperate to try and get some more of these things out into the wild because I think some of the larger organizations are still a bit reticent about you know, can we do everything we need with a static site? Yeah, it's it's no mystery. Static is basically the the future, really. <laughs> but I yeah. think I think one of the big things is going to be trying to, in in terms of being an advocate for this approach, yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear more about some of the staggering differences in performance. So, do you happen to have any of those performance increased numbers? I hate to put you on the spot. No, that's fine. And. Um, once we're done here, I'll show you some things <laughs> that will make your eyes water. Uh, but uh, off the top of my head, I've built this this out, or sorry, we've built this out and tested it over a few different uh, network conditions because you know a lot of the the bottleneck was large assets delivered slowly over the network and blocking rendering and those kind of things. So, and the starting point was not a good performing site as well. So it's it's worth pointing that out. But you know, we are talking about under good network conditions bringing a like a four and a half second load time down to less than one and a half to like wow. rendering, you know, rendering complete content over less favorable conditions. So I, I did um, a 2G connection, which you know sounds dramatic, but you know, sixty percent of the world is browsing on a 2G connection at best. And that was about a 10 to 12 second render for this model that I'm talking about, which has got some fairly big assets in it, versus over a minute for the other one. And, wow. And you know, 10 seconds is not good, but once it gets to a minute, it doesn't matter how beautiful your site is because nobody's yeah. there to see it, yep. right? So, um, so yeah, when you put those two things together, it, put them side by side, it's really dramatic. Of course, it's not just the size of the assets that are coming down the, the, the wire, it's like the number of requests, 
how those requests are packaged up, you know, what's blocking the rendering, which again is why I really like this model of delivering HTML that doesn't need JavaScript to render. You know, get JavaScript out of the way, get a, a full you know, rendered page there so that the user can start reading the content. And then behind the scenes, you're loading in the JavaScript. So yeah, ch switching from one to the other definitely had a dramatic impact, and some of them so much so that it was, you know, it was, it was hard to keep thinking about things to talk about while you're waiting for one of them to render, while the other one you'd kind of finished looking at. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty powerful demonstration. So really, this has a lot of great applications on mobile for users that use a lot of mobile traffic on their sites and stuff like that. It, Absolutely. it could be really ad advantageous. Absolutely. I mean, I think optimizing performance is just good everywhere, right? But yeah, you've you've got to be thinking about the mobile user. And it's not just about the fact that they their connection might not be you know, solid. You know, very often mobile users are sitting at home, they're on their Wi-Fi. It's not that's not always the thing. The devices have different ways of rendering the JavaScript and different levels of power and those kind of things. So yeah, there's a lot to think about there. But optimizing for performance just is good everywhere, right? It's just a win across the board. But yeah, the mobile context was another one that was very interesting to demonstrate the two side by side. Well, yeah, I mean you were talking just on Wi-Fi from what you were saying is it's almost four hundred percent faster. And then on mobile, with your, when you're using 2G or something like that, it was I think it was 12, minute, 12 seconds versus 62 seconds. Yeah. So that's 600, almost 700 percent larger, so yeah. that, or quicker. So that is staggering. Yeah, and you know I, I should say that you know this the comparison we're talking about here. This is a platform that I think was is suboptimal already that we're comparing against. But that's kind of that's one of the reasons I'm very cautious about naming the uh, the company. But yeah, so th I, I think as soon as you start to give the power to the front end developer to control what happens in the front end, you know, you need that really to be able to tune the performance and to deliver stuff in the browser. I used to kind of make jokes about how when I used to be a, a JavaScript developer, foremost as my my kind of discipline, I'd talk occasionally about having conversations with people and saying. Yeah, what do you do? Well, I'm I'm a software engineer. Oh, what do you uh, write code in? Oh, JavaScript, and then they just start laughing at you, and it's like, well, that's not a real thing, you know, because <laughs> everyone just sneered at the front end and thought JavaScript wasn't a real thing. But times have changed a little bit, you know, and I think we now recognise that front end development is a really, you know, difficult craft. You know, yeah. it's 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 brutal, and doing it doing it well is important, and it's a huge aspect of user experience and all of those things. It definitely used to be seen, I think, as well, it's the output of the clever stuff in the back end. You know, most of the things that we've seen which are crappy experiences along the way have probably be because you know the output hasn't been built by front-end developers. You know, yeah. it's, you know, HTML's easy, right? Anyone can do that and just style it up and off it goes. But you know, we know now that it's a, it's a real craft, so you need to give the people building this access to the tools and the control to you know to, to tune it properly. Otherwise, bad things happen. Absolutely, very cool. So you you mentioned your talk a couple times. Are you giving this talk anywhere else in the wild that people can see in the future? Well, it just so happens, Brian. That <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll be doing that this evening at the, okay. at the Jamstack meetup here in San Francisco. Yeah, looking forward um, to that. And really, um, I haven't got this planned as a talk that I'm going to be giving anywhere else. But I'll I'll be honest, I'm a tart. I'll go and talk anywhere given an opportunity. <laughs> uh, so if I get get a chance to trot this out again, I certainly will. And and the static site talk that I mentioned earlier on is one that's evolved over actually two or three years now from you know just starting out and saying I think it can go further and then starting to bring in different tools and different approaches as they've matured. I kind of thought that I'd retired it, but it seems to 
keep on evolving. So yeah. I wouldn't be at all surprised if this morphs into something else and then it, yeah. it, it gets out into the wild again. But uh, certainly there are kind of, there are videos around, I think, of some of the versions of this. But this particular one I'm doing at the Jamstack meetup, I think it's probably the first time it's been been out in the public in this way. So other than what's on my on my blog. Cool. So hopefully we'll share that recording. Uh, and it sounds like even you, you mentioned it's two to three years old. The talk around static that you've mm-hmm. been giving, mm-hmm. it seems like it's even more evolving too. Because I mentioned on the way over here about GraphQL, which is a new way right. of manipulating your data into your front end. Uh-huh. So that's a whole new thing that Facebook's doing. Right. And then you have this whole serverless architecture yes. too as well, where not only can you talk to AWS and Lambda and Azure and all those other things, but now you have a framework built around this to now mm-hmm. this instead of now getting your DevOps or your backend team to help you out with this, now you're just writing like scripts to build out your entire architecture yeah. for your backend. I'm really excited by serverless, I have to say, because one of the things that I tried to squeeze into this talk was, you know, where are the limitations? Because a static site isn't good for everything, right? There are there are use cases that sadly we can't quite satisfy. But there are lots of places where it, it is it is bang on. And then, you know, what are the features that we miss? What are the features that maybe we could solve? And you know, it turns out there's quite a lot more that you could do than you might initially think. You know, and so, you know, I've had, had examples of search and you know form submissions and those kind of things that are totally viable. You know, the uh, I have a really nice search implementation on my on my own site that is a progressive enhancement. You know, it's a page with a search form on it that if you've got no JavaScript, it just goes to Google and it you know adds the the site parameter of searching on my on my blog and you get results and that, so that that's nice but then with progressive enhancements the behavior is that as you click on the search button it doesn't take you to that page it just gives you a, a text box and while it displays that it also goes off to the server and gets a static file which is just a blob of JSON which is you know an index of all of the the content uh, across the site and then just does some string matching so as you type you get instant results so it feels Really snappy, and yeah, search is a complex thing, and this is a simple search solution. But you know, there's lots of examples like that where you can be a little bit creative and just start to add some of the features that you might think you might not be able to do with a static architecture. And serverless is somewhere that I think you know that opens things up way uh, wider now because now you can just start handing off particular tasks to a real infrastructure in the background. That can be dynamic, so you get you kind of get the best of both, which I really like. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm really looking forward to how Jamstack's like in, involvement in the ecosystem, how yeah. it's going to start more expanding. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's just more more and more awesomeness yeah, coming out of there. I'm really worried that I'll start to sound like a massive. Netlify fanboy, but I, at this point I don't care. That ship has sailed. But, um, but things like the uh, ability to control the URL structure with the redirects yeah. configuration that you have on Netlify is just so trivially easy and powerful yeah. that um, that passing things through to some of these other services is kind of invisible and seamless. It just opens up the opportunities yeah. for do so many things. I'm I'm pretty excited. About it, that. It's about to get easier too. Our CTO is actually doing a talk alongside your talk tonight about oh, really? how he rewrote that whole structure in Elm. Oh, nice. Um, so more on that later. But cool. uh, I'm going to go ahead and transition us into picks now, since uh, cool. we've had a, a, quite a big, robust conversation on isomorphic rendering. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, uh, I, w- I wish you'd say that without rolling your eyes. You say, "I know, I know, you're judging me for using that buzzword, but that's that's fine." But keep the robot voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cool. And then, so picks basically anything that we're jamming on, anything that's keeping us going as far as developing, anything we're excited about. 
And since you are our guest, Phil, I'll let you go first. So, are we talking about tools, or because I, I, I thought this was all of the above. All of the above. Okay. Well, I mean, I've already mentioned like, a couple of the things that I loved in Contentful and Netlify, so I'm going to leave those leave those aside and serverless as well. But I, I know that you can in this section you kind of talk about other things that you're enjoying as well, and like like down to TV. I've just finished watching The Night of. Did you guys watch that? Yeah, yeah, yep. It was a pick a couple oh. weeks ago. Oh, it was. Oh, I yeah. Didn't, oh, no, I didn't no worries. That. That's your pick. You, oh. you own that one. Oh, yeah. I, yeah so I, I really um, think people should. Do- I'm. So, I I really gobbled that up. I thought it was amazing. So yeah, that was that was. Don't ruin the, anything. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say a word. But all I'd say is that I mean, there's been lots of good TV recently, but this is the first program that's made me think: Is this better than The Wire? I don't know. Could it? Could it be? <laughs> could it be? So yeah, I just thought that was um, staggeringly good. And then when it comes to music. I'm not very good at staying up to date. I've never sounded more like an Englishman than just then. Uh, I don't know what's in the hit parade. Um, but uh, uh, but I, I find myself listening to quite a diverse range of things. Um, I listen to a lot of Foo Fighters, and that kind of gets gets my kind of energy levels up, but I, it's not very good to write code to. So um, things like John Hopkins and Chiasmos are both kind of a little bit more ambient and kind of electronic wallpaper, I kind of like to think of them as, but I'm kind of enjoying both of those things at the moment. Electronic wallpaper, that's such an eloquent way of putting things. It's actually, that's (laughs) the name of my Spotify playlist that has all those things. I like it. Yeah, so I guess what what I've been jamming on lately, uh, while we're talking music, I have been really loving bluegrass. Okay, Um, as a genre? As a genre, but specifically this band called Iron Horse, and they take... They do covers of indie bands, essentially. Well, they do other other covers, but uh, basically they take each album and, and tribute it to either a band or, for example, classic rock in general. Um, but they have an album on Modest Mouse, and it is awesome. They have another album on The Shins, and I'm such a, a sucker for The Shins that I, I can't help but love it. And on the tech side of things, maybe it's just because it's fresh in my, in my mind, but I've been really enjoying Lunar.js. We just redid our search on Netlify.com, mm-hmm. um, and it was extremely enjoyable taking something that a lot of people think static sites can't have much search on it, and integrating it on the server side. Mm. And it's just incredibly helpful. And I liked using that with some gulp tasks to make it work. So stay tuned to the blog. We'll be uh, we'll be sharing a little bit about that. Oh soon. yeah, I want to hear about that. Yeah, cool. You just reminded me. I've forgotten the most important thing. I brought you some jam. <laughs> I brought you some jam. Now, this should be a sign of my dedication to spreading the jam. And again, I feel awkward as an Englishman trying to sound cool saying spread the jam. Uh, but, but keep in mind that I travelled here from London and I very rarely check a bag in. I checked my luggage in so that I could bring you jam. I hope that... I hope oh, wow. that that's that some dedication. I'm on. I, have, I have three jams for you. I have here a, a Wilkins & Sons... Uh, strawberry conserve uh, from Tiptree in Essex. Uh, so that's that's a little beauty. There you go, oh, Brian. Wow, that's um, uh, that is a mouthful. I, I also have another another uh, another one from Tiptree, apricot jam for you. And then finally, I have uh, McKay's seedless bramble preserve. Do you guys know what brambles are? Uh, no, but I'm sure you'll explain. Bra- <laughs> <laughs> he says, rolling his eyes. Again. <laughs> uh, brambles are um, what the, what we call uh, blackberries. In England, so this really? is a Scottish oh. jam for you. So there's English and Scottish jams brought over in my luggage that I had to check, but that's, wow. fine. that's fine. We have we have quite the collection at the office right now. Oh yeah, 
We have no bread now, so no. <laughs> I just sit there eating it with spoons out of the jars. Yeah, at, at this no point, good. yes. <laughs> so uh, make a note, uh, office manager, please order bread and peanut butter. And, and peanut butter. butter. Yeah. Cool. So my picks, uh, yeah, I'm just completely baffled on this amazing jam selection you yes. brought us. Uh, my picks, actually, so I have a music pick, which is Dustin Kinsrew, which I'm not picking him. Does a cover of the Wrecking Ball. Which is Miley Cyrus's song. Nice. I listen to that maybe once, at least every weekend. I just bring it up and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Really? So, Dustin Kendrew, I guess he was a lead singer for the band Thrice. I'm not picking them either because I'm not really familiar with their music, but this song is amazing. Look it up on Spotify. I guess that's our our choice uh, of music playing yeah, at this point. Seems to be. I've got this mental image of of Brian swinging in on this wrecking ball oh, in his house, dear. or like a risky business esque thing. Where he's well, why did you do that to us? Now I can't see. Well, it's more else. indie than that, so yeah. maybe not like risky business. Maybe like I don't know, like horn rim glasses and. Uh, <laughs> no, but it's the image of you riding in naked on a wrecking ball that I'm struggling with now. But wow, well, I'm, I'm sure you'd style it out. I'm sure you'd look lovely. Sarah, this is the West Coast, so everything. <laughs> actually, this is the Bay Area, everything goes. So. Yeah, everything goes. <laughs> cool. And then, uh, oh, my other pick is actually Westworld. Uh, I oh, am going to be the first yes. to actually talk about Westworld on the podcast. Please watch it; it's amazing. So, I'm, so I, I guess our our it's either going to be a Kanye pick or an HBO pick from me. And this HBO series is amazing. So check it out. Um, it's about like six episodes in uh, at this point. Uh, I'll probably be wrapping up soon. I'm not sure how long it's going to oh, be. God, but I hope not. It's it is amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. basically like uh, not to give away too much, but it's like well, Battlestar Galactica meets the Wild Wild West. Yeah, uh, super super intriguing stuff. So yeah. check it out. Cool, and that's so that's all we got for the Jamstack Radio. So thanks again, Phil, for coming on. Oh, well, thanks for having me. And Eli, thanks for coming on too. Does uh, help with the conversation. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> awesome, and then listeners. Keep spreading the jam. That's all the time we have for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 